the free for all roundtable round one on round one let's say good morning to scott reed ctv political commentator former advisor to prime minister paul martin deb hutton is here former advisor to two ontario premiers and jerry agar who just advises you advisor to nobody yeah nine to noon every day um good morning good to have you all let's actually start with um a story we were discussing a little earlier in the show and we had a guest here who is heading up a petition to convince whoever it is in authority, apparently the government could ban him if they wanted to, Alex Ovechkin, the hockey player. He's Toronto-bound to play the Maple Leafs with the Washington Capitals and needs a visa every time he comes to Canada. So if they denied it to him, he wouldn't be allowed in. The problem, of course, is he's not only Russian, he's a very vocal and enthusiastic supporter of Vladimir Putin. Should we kick him out or keep him out, Jerry? Well, we're kind of at war with them, aren't we? Are we not? I yep. mean, we, we've picked a side. And so we are technically not boots on the ground, but we're technically at war with uh, Russia. And so I think you can make a case that he shouldn't come. Plus, he should have less opportunity to try and close in on Gretzky's records. There you go. Yeah. Uh, Tim Hudak. Otherwise known as his wife. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, first of all, what would Tim say? <laughs> oh, John Moore. I oh, thought we were friends. That was Jerry. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Right. Listen, um, Larissa Waller's heart is in the absolute right place. I just think it should be directed at the NHL. I'm not super comfortable with the notion of the government deciding he shouldn't be able to come into play, but I do think he should not be allowed to play by the NHL. Okay, and let's get somebody's name right for... Let's start. Uh, Scott Reed. Uh, no, sorry. This is Tim Hudak on hold. Um, <laughs> uh, well, I'm sort of where Deb is, I guess. Look, the, the truth of the matter is I feel uncomfortable about uh, that step. But I'm kind of uncomfortable about the fact I'm uncomfortable about it because logically, you know, we are part of the NATO mission. We are, um, you, you know, we are in the world of condemning um all those that surround uh, Putin. He's a vocal supporter of Putin. So, you know, I guess it's one of those threshold questions. When do you boycott the Olympics? When do you cross the line between uh, sports and politics? And I don't know. I just don't know that I would put pressure specifically on the individual player as opposed to the NHL. Um, but I'm not sure that my logic holds up. So I think I feel uncomfortable with my own position. Yeah, I'd have to do some research. I'm not sure what we did about German athletes during the Second World War, although there probably wasn't a lot of athletics going on. The Olympics were canceled, for example. Um, so an activist group, as you heard just minutes ago, and you know, people are saying it was really hard to listen to, but well, so it should be. Uh, an activist group is sounding the alarm over pets being abandoned in the Rouge Valley. Um, Deb, it just seems, I mean, it's hard enough to imagine that somebody would get a pet and then decide, not nah, giving it back and take it back to the breeder or tower to the rescue. But the idea of turfing it out of a car in a wilderness park is nuts. Absolutely. And listen, I, I would rather someone acknowledge they make a mistake and find a home for a pet that they can't manage than this. I mean, this is just atrocious. And I don't know how you, how you sort of bring an end to it. I don't know if we need better screening and getting a pet. I will say we have a uh, actually 10-month-old puppy yesterday, and the amount of screening we went through in the interviews was phenomenal. So I, I don't know if we need to crack down on, on some of the breeders. I don't know if this is because of pets. I have no idea what the cause of people getting pets is uh, who 
clearly have no ability to take care of them. Uh, but we also have to find people who do this. And there have to be major penalties if we're ever going to stop this. That's an interesting way of framing it, actually. Yeah, because Scott Reed, for whatever reason, we don't seem to regard cruelty to animals with, you know, the amount of concern it might deserve. Yeah, look, you know, there are options available for people who regret their choice when it comes to adopting a pet. And, you know, dumping an animal out in a, you know, a park like that, to me, that's a choice of a coward because it means, one, you're too lazy to go and pursue those other options. Two, um, you're... Uh, too uh, unwilling, um, you know, like if, if, if you want the animal to die, uh, then, you know, you know, use your own hands. Uh, so they just throw it out there to die, but they want to do it, you know, without that blood on their hands. So it's, it's, it's cowardly. I'm, I'm going to be more Jerry than Jerry. I think people that do this, it's like, you know what? Turnabout's fair play. I think in a proportionate punishment would be to put them out you know, in the park uh, for two nights and see how they fare. It'd be turned into a reality show, I'm sure. Uh, Jerry, the saddest aspect in all of this, aside from the animals who have died as a result of it, is that apparently a dog will just sit there and wait because it expects its human to come back. Yeah, I've, I've often read that if you were to take a puppy and a kitten and put them on an island, you'd come back in a year. You, the cat will greet you and the dog will be dead. But the, but that's not the dog's fault because we've domesticated the, the the hunting instinct out of them, except for those dogs that, you know, retrieve and that kind of thing. But mostly they, they do expect to be looked after because that's what we brought them up to be. Then that little example of the dog and the cat only reminds me of one of my favorite jokes, which is uh, put your partner and a dog in the trunk of the car, come back an hour later, who's happy to see you? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a Jeff Foxworthy thing, I think. <laughs> Justin Trudeau yesterday expressing some degree of astonishment over the fact that the ArriveCan app um, was $54 million in the making. Uh, Jerry, I'm not surprised at all. Government procurement is always a mess. Well, if he's surprised, he hasn't been paying attention because how long ago did the rest of us raise the alarm on this thing? And now I, I think he's insufficiently, well, he's not engaged. He's just pretending to be engaged is my cynical view and, and not looking at it in the right way. It's, it's not so much um, how the contracting was done. It's you willingly spent the $54 million. If I said to you, John, that I could come over and I could uh, fix something in, in your house. Could you? Um, well, possibly. But if I, if I said I would do that and then you said, how much? And I said, I don't know, I'll just do whatever the hell I want, and I'll let you know. Would, would you say yes to that? No, Jiffy never works like okay, that. Okay, see, there you look how I set you up there. All right. uh, neither does 310 Reno, by the way. <laughs> um, and, and so, uh, but nobody does that. Like, just, here's a, here's a blank check, fill it in yourself. That's what the Prime Minister is responsible for. I'm shocked, shocked to find that gambling is going on in here. <laughs> Scott Reed, your thoughts? Well, um... I think a couple of things. First of all, I think that the threat, as counterintuitive as this seems, is that government's going to make procurement more complicated and less likely to occur <clears throat> because it's going to start gripping the stick. Uh, th this happened during COVID. It shouldn't have happened. Um, I want to find out who knew who. So I still think there's a, whether it's somewhere in the bowels of the bureaucracy or at the political level, um, there's an untold story about how this contract got in the hands of these guys in particular and how all that occurred. Um, in terms of lack of 
oversight, speeding it through. I think probably a lot of that has to do with COVID and being urgent and flouting rules as opposed to following them, all that sort of stuff. But my fear is that what will happen, to your point about procurement never works, is that the government will just seize up like a motor. They'll say, that's it. You know what? Uh, we're going to make it 35,000 times harder and you'll get more and more problems going down the road. And this won't solve problems. This will create them. Okay, listen, I want to get to a few other topics. So with permission, I'll move to a different one. And Deb, I'll start with you on this. Um, an Ontario appeals court, and this has happened more than once now, has decided that rehabilitation is not really a judge's preoccupation when it comes to domestic violence, that they have to lock people up for longer periods of time and they have to make an example of them. Are you on that? I 100% uh, am on that, and I'm going to do the rare thing and actually applaud uh, the judiciary for this. However, my broader issue with whether it's domestic violence, whether it's the parole and bail system that we've talked about so often in the last few months, is that government needs to make some changes to its legislation. Because too often, I am criticizing the judiciary because they are too soft. And so we need stricter laws, we need stricter guidelines. And yes, I think when you do something, in particular, domestic violence, violence against children, all of those sort of heinous crimes, we need to be tougher in our penalties and give our judges far less ability to decide whatever it is their social cause is. And in this particular case, Jerry, uh, I would say if you stab a pregnant woman in the neck and almost kill her and she loses the baby, then rehabilitation isn't really my primary concern. No. Um, well, he went further than that. He was kicking her to make sure she was dead. She wisely played dead and she lived and the baby did not survive. Um, so the rehabilitation thing, I think, absolutely should be secondary. This might be a swinging back of the pendulum from what started with Pierre Elliott Trudeau. And in terms of deterrence, I don't know how much effect stronger sentences, as much as I call for them, have in deterrence. Because when people lose their minds and commit violent offenses, I don't think they're thinking about that. Um, but, you know, the longer somebody is locked up, the less chance of that person who has proven themselves to be dangerous could hurt anybody else. Yeah, I think there are something like seven or eight circumstances a judge considers, and Scott Reed, uh, one of them is just removing somebody from society. So maybe that's part of this process as well. Well, you know, in sentencing, there's the principle of you know, general deterrence and then specific deterrence. So, you know, there, these things are weighed in a more nuanced and complicated way than we sometimes give uh, the system credit for. My question, though, is like, obviously, who's going who's gonna to stand up and cheer for the, uh, you know, men that tried to kill their partners but if we're like what's going on here so they say okay well in in this category of crime we're going to alter the discretion toward uh, deterrence but not in other categories of crime so like if that's if that principle is sensible here why isn't it sensible in pick your category like four or five other areas so i'm not i'm not crystal clear on what this means so i don't know if i come down basically where deb does which is that if you're saying well now just going from case to case now you're going to go from category to category um wh what are the principles under you know underpinning the determination of sentencing and and if it's no you know, it's rehabilitation and everything except domestic assault, um, where will be deterrence. That, that 
I don't understand that. So how does this how does this ripple across sentencing? And I, I, I think it raises important, awkward, difficult questions. There is, well, there's 60 seconds on the clock, so not a lot of time, but interesting think piece in the New York Times about tipping. Jerry, are you tired of being asked to tip for things that don't even involve somebody serving you? Okay, I understand why people, they don't want to be asked to tip. They don't want to be asked at the LCBO if they want to contribute to charity or whatever. But when you get up in the morning, put on your long pants and make decisions in your life. If you don't want to tip and you don't want to give to charity, then don't. Uh, you know, stop looking for somebody to rescue you. Right. Although I did get the stink eye at a parking lot for not tipping and they didn't even have valets. Okay, so uh, did that oh, ruin your day? <laughs> How was your crushed velvet shirt? Did it get wrinkled? All right, that's enough from all of you. Um, Deb Hutton, incidentally, is going to be co-hosting The Rush this afternoon. Shocked, can... shocked to find that gambling is going on in here. <laughs> oh, okay. Ding, ding, ding. All right, well, uh, Scott Reed, Deb Hutton, and Jerry Agar. Catch the roundtable, round one at 745, round two at 845. Weekday mornings on More in the Morning. News Talk 1010 Toronto.